I have something I'm really excited about this week, and that is that we are going to have a Devo. We're going to have a Devo. This man needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. Robert, if there is anyone besides Jesus that makes this study work, it's Rob. Obviously, we know that this only happens by God's grace. But as far as the tool that God uses to make it happen, it's Robert. And uh, I would be a total wreck without him. We wouldn't even be here. Uh, I would think that the, stu- the study was on Thursday for some reason. Rob makes this whole place work. But not only does he have these great gifts to be able to, uh, you know, manage and, and arrange and organize this entire Bible study. And believe me, it's not easy. There's a lot that goes into it. But on top of that, he has a great gift to just share the word. And uh, so I'm always excited uh, to have Rob come and, uh, and give us a Devo. So with that being said, welcome with me, Robert. Um, but if you would pray with me, and we'll get into the Devo. <sighs> Father, I thank you so much. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you hear me when I talk. I thank you for letting me go to heaven for free. Thank you for cleansing me of my unrighteousness. Thank you so much, Lord. And I just pray that you would speak through me, um, that not one word would be my word, but they would all be yours. And Lord, I just pray that uh, they would hear, the people would hear what you want them to hear, Lord. I thank you, Lord, and I love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm going to be in... 1 Peter chapter 3, and the title of my Devo, it's more of a question, um, is what do you defend? 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 15, be, be, be sanctified, the Lord, the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. In the past, every time I heard this verse, I would think, oh no, here comes the lecture on, um, I need to know everything about every religion, I need to know everything about my Bible. Um, and I would just, I would just turn it off. That's for other people, that's for those guys that are in apologetics. Um, I didn't need to know all those things. Why do I have to know for other people? Um, when, when it's very important, it's very important to know what it is you believe. It's very important to know what other people believe. Um, the Bible says in, in 2 Timothy 2.15, the study to show yourself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Um, that's not a suggestion. That's, that's a command. That's something that we should be doing. But I want to bring it to you in a, in a different way, something that was shown to me by one of my friends. Um, he said, he said he was, he's, my friend doesn't like Apple. He doesn't like Apple. He doesn't like the iPhone. Um, and he's very vocal about it. And he was at the grocery store. And he was talking about how he doesn't like the iPhone. And while he was talking to his friend, the cashier heard him, stopped, took out his iPhone. 
handed it to him, and then began to tell him everything about the iPhone and how great it is. Um, and he said to me, why does everybody who has an iPhone need to be an evangelist? And it clicked in my mind. It clicked in my mind this. Um, whatever you love is what you're going to defend. And you're going to defend it at any time, anywhere, um, with anyone. Now, there are a lot of things that we defend. Um, for me, for me, my thing is Disneyland. Um, I love going to Disneyland. I go all the time. Uh, I know everything about Disneyland uh, from when it opened to what they're going to do next year uh, to the times they're going to be open next week. Um, I even have a little tour that I do for people when, I, when we go down Main Street the first time they come with me. Um, and not only that, I'm going to tell them why Disneyland is better than everywhere else, why they need to go, and why they should have an annual pass. Um, and that's just who I am. That's just what I do. But we all have those things. We all have those things of maybe it is your iPhone or maybe uh, it's a sports team and you know every player's name and their statistics and everywhere they played and, and where they're probably going to go next year. Or, or maybe it's a TV show where um, you watch it and you talk about how great it is with your friends and everybody else. Um, or girls, what if I just said to you, Forever, one, Forever 21 sucks. Instantly in your mind, you had a thought of why it was good. Instantly. Um, and we're all, we're all guilty of that. Um, but how much greater is God? How much more has God done for us? Um, Disneyland is just a place. Um, Forever 21 is just a store. God is our Savior. He saved us. How much more should we be ready to defend him anywhere, anytime, as much as we do everything else? There's only, you know, family, there's only one thing we're not going to be able to get to do in heaven. And you know what that is? Preach the gospel. Tell people how to be saved. Tell people about Jesus. Tell people about our God. Tell people what we've been given for free. We won't get to do that in heaven. This is the only time we will ever be able to share the gospel. Um, but when I think about myself, when I think about myself of why um, I wouldn't share in the past, I always had the same questions in my mind of, what if I don't have an answer for them? What if I don't have, what if I just don't know what to say to them? What if they get angry at me? What if they clown me? What if, I don't know, anything. What if I get hit by a car while I'm doing it? When the only what if question you should have in your mind is, what if they come to know Jesus Christ? That one question should block out every other question that one question should outshine everything in your mind every doubt because i would like to, i would i would rather look like a fool i would rather be yelled at i would rather be somebody get angry with me 
I would rather be say I just don't know the answer to your question, um, and look foolish if they come to know God. But maybe, maybe you're still you're still thinking, well, that's that's not me. That's not me. I don't know enough. Um, you're still wrestling with those questions. I don't know enough. Um, but there really are two things, the only two things you need to know, at least to start. And you have them. You have them today. The first thing, the first thing is your testimony. Who you are, who you were, and who you are. There is no miracle that can be explained away. Well, every miracle can be explained away except for a changed life. You know that your life has been changed, um, and all you know it is is because... Jesus came for you, he died for you, and now you're, you're going to go to heaven. That's all you know. I mean, the, the blind man and John, the Pharisees asked him, do you know who this man is? And he said, all I know is I was blind, and now I can see. Moments, moments after his conversion, he was sharing. He was sharing. How long have you been a Christian? Have you shared? Just your testimony should be enough to share. The second thing is the gospel, the gospel message of that very thing that we were once separated from God by sin. And God came in man form and was sacrificed. He took on our sins and was sacrificed so that we could now have communication with God. We could now be forgiven. Uh, he lived a sinless life and rose to the dead because we couldn't. So that now we can have access to God. So now that we can go to heaven. So now that we are saved. The simple gospel message is what changes lives. The simple gospel message is what penetrates hearts. That's what got you here, not answering a question, um, not showing you some fancy story, but the gospel message is what got you here. Yes, all those things matter. Yes, we should be able to answer a question. Um, But those two, if you have those two, you're ready right here, right now to leave this building and go share the gospel with somebody. So my, so just um, in the last part of that verse says, with meekness and in fear. Just a couple examples of, of, of sharing in meekness and in fear. Um, we're not looking to to win an argument with somebody when we're sharing with them. We're not looking to prove that we're right and they're wrong. Yes, they need to realize that. But, for instance, if somebody comes up to you who is a Muslim and says, do you believe that I'm going to go to hell? Your response should bu- should not be, absolutely, let me tell you why, and go down a list of reasons why. Um, your response should be, with a real heart, I don't want you to go to hell. There's nothing different between me and you. I'm just a beggar showing another beggar where to find food. Um, but let me, let me explain to you, let me explain to you why the Bible says that. I was going to go to hell. It says that all men have fallen short. All men, me too. The only difference is this that I believe in Jesus. 
um, you should be coming in that heart. Nobody cares what you know until they know how much that you care about them. You should be coming in that heart. That's what meekness and fear means. That we don't come in the attitude of, yeah, I know everything about your religion and it's wrong. Um, it should be, let me tell you why I want to share with you. I was lost. I was lost like you. Um, and the only reason I'm saved is because of Jesus. Um, you know what, family? My, my heart desire, my heart's desire for myself and for us is that that we would show, in, in Philippians, Paul talks about, just let me read the verse. Philippians 3, starting in verse 7, it says, Once these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless in, when compared to the infinite value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For that sake I have discarded everything else, counting it as garbage, so that I could gain Christ. Paul realizes that in comparison to everything else, knowing Jesus Christ has infinite value. Um, he even in, calls it garbage. In my translation, he calls it garbage. But in the King James Version, he refers to it as dung. That everything else is that worthless compared to knowing who Jesus Christ is. Uh, does that mean you can't like other things? Of course you can like other things. Um, but my, my want, my challenge for myself and for you is that you would talk about Jesus Christ and you would defend Jesus Christ than you do a baseball team or a store or a place or a thing. God's in infinite value is shown in your life when you can give, show his value to everyone else. When the phone mean ap means absolutely nothing to you in comparison to God. When your computer means absolutely nothing to you in comparison to God. That is when God's infinite value shines through your life. But I have just one more point that I want to make. I just want to close in a verse. I want to close in a verse that is a command. It's a command from Jesus. It's in Matthew 28. It's the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is starting in verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying... All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, going therefore making disciples for, for, of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, to observe all things and to have... I'm missing part of it. Sorry. I copied it in my little notes wrong. Um, but you get it. We're supposed to be out sharing the gospel and making disciples of men. Um, 
I just want to make one one more point on my notes. Um, the Bible says to let your light shine before men. Um, and I know for me, when I hear stories about sharing the gospel, um, I always used to lean back on the, well, I'll just let my light shine in my school. I'll just let my light shine in my job. I'll just let my light shine within my family. Um, but I, w- I just want to clarify what letting your light shine is. Um, letting your light shine is, yes, reading your Bible and doing what is right and serving God and going to church. But letting your light shine is also looking for every opportunity you're given. When you're at school, you're not called to go to school and study and get a good grade and go home. Yes, it's part of it. But you're at school to be used by God. Um, If there's somebody in your classroom and you notice that they are not, where you can see that they're visibly down, ask them, what's going on, man? Tell me about it. I want to hear about it. Um, Just really listen to what they have to say. The same thing in your job. If you see somebody's down, hey, man, why don't we go to lunch? And you can tell me what's going on in life right now. That's letting your light shine. Um, But I also want to just, if you haven't been street witnessing once, I would recommend that you go street witnessing at least once. Um, I've always been the one to be afraid of it. Um, It's really not my thing to just go up to somebody and start a conversation. But recently, the Lord has shown me the importance of just being out and sharing i now lead a group that goes out witnessing you can come um saturday nights six thirty. we meet in front of the harvest cafe you're welcome to come anytime um but i would recommend it's not a plug for my ministry um it's really what's on my heart right now i haven't had any training with swat or g3 or any of that um all i know is my testimony in the gospel. And as things come up that I don't know, of course I go and study. That's what we're called to do. Um, but I just want you to go out. Let your light shine. Look for an opportunity to share. All of these people that don't know God are going to go to hell. They need to know Jesus. It is that important. It should be that important. You should see it as that. Um, Share in your school, share in your, in your home, share at, at your job. But take an opportunity to just walk out somewhere and just share with a random stranger. We're all here because somebody talked to us. Our friend or our parents or somebody talked to us. We need to go out and talk to people. Amen. Would you let me pray for you? <sighs> Father, I just, I just thank you so much. I thank you for putting someone in front of me, Lord, to share the gospel with me. Someone that wasn't afraid, someone who was just ready to share with a real heart. And Lord, I I pray that you would give us the strength and the boldness to not be afraid, but to stand out, to stand out in your boldness, to show your infinite value in our lives, Lord. 
please, I ask that you would give each one of these in front of me one person to talk to. One person, one real conversation where they could share who they were and who they are. They can share who you are. Lord, please, please, we want to fulfill your great commission. We want to go out and share the gospel and make disciples of men, Lord. It's urgent. It's an, it's an emergency, Lord, for us to be out there. And Father, I just thank you so much for saving us, for giving us your word, for helping us to understand, for saving us. I thank you so much, Lord, and I love you so much. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. That was sweet. That was sweet. I cannot relate enough. I cannot relate enough to the need to preach the gospel and the fear of preaching the gospel. You know, like I just said, I I work at Harvest. I work in the high school ministry. But working in the high school ministry involves me being a staff member for three different ministries. Three different ministries. The first one is Activate, which is our high school ministry. The second one is SWAT, Students with a Testimony. And this is our, our like street witnessing evangelism arm of our high school ministry. And the third ministry that, I'm, that I work for is, it's called G3. and stands for Gideon's 300. And the purpose of this ministry is to go out before Harvest Crusades and train other youth groups to share their faith. And ultimately, it's our goal to train up 300, hence Gideon's 300, to train up 300 people. 300 youth to be sharing their faith before and after the Harvest Crusade so that that work continues on. So working for this, you know, these two ministries, SWAT and G3, most of you would probably assume that I must have the gift of evangelism then. Nope. Definitely not. I do not have the gift of evangelism. And in fact, there are four of us that are on staff for this ministry. And I would say that only one of us has the spiritual gift of evangelism. But you know what? Every single crusade, I go out, I invite people out to the Harvest Crusade, and I share the gospel with them. Before every crusade, I'm on at least one trip that I'm going out and I'm training people how to share their faith on the street, just walk up to people and, and engage them in a conversation and share the gospel with them and give them an opportunity to give their life to Christ all the time. Why? Because I have the gift? No, I I don't have the gift. And you know, you don't need to have the gift of evangelism to do the work of an evangelist. And look, I know what it's like to be nervous and scared to do something like that. Every single time I go out, I'm terrified to preach the gospel. Are you kidding me? Going up to someone and having a 30-second icebreaker that transitions into just the full gospel message, that's terrifying. It's terrifying. You know? But I want to share two stories with you, real quick stories. The first one is just this happened a couple weeks ago when I was out in Chicago and I went out with, um, you know, I'd, I'd shared that I went out with, with Brian Fry and uh, Aaron. Aaron was there, and uh, Monique, who, you know, is usually here every week, she was out there with us. We all went out, and we did one of these G3 trips where we were training kids in the local area, high school and college-age kids, how to share their faith on the street, okay? So... We have this, this training session. We, we all get together, 
And uh, Pastor Mike Jonker, who is the pastor over that specific trip, just asked me to, to talk about G3 and talk about what we were going to be doing. So I did. I gave like sort of the pep talk or whatever before we went out witnessing with these uh, high school kids. And afterwards, I got my group. I, I, I had this, these two guys. It was Jake and I, I can't remember the other guy's name. So Bob, I don't know. But anyway, so I had these two guys, and the very first thing I said to these two guys that I was training was, I need coffee. I was so tired, I needed coffee, so we went across the street to Caribou Coffee. Now I know you're thinking, Tyler, you have a mission, you're supposed to be witnessing everything that happens in life. God works out for a reason. We go across the street to Caribou Coffee, I get my cup of coffee, feeling great about life, and uh, we go to cross the street, and I'm talking to, to Jake and this other guy that I was training, and there were these two guys at the intersection that looked to be about college age. They were walking across the street to the park where we were going to be witnessing. And the Lord laid it on my heart to talk to these two guys, but I knew it would be awkward. We're about to cross the street together. Um, I, I, I haven't even, we haven't done this yet, so the guys that I'm training would be totally caught off guard. I, I was just like, Lord, it would be too awkward. You're going to have to bring someone else to witness to these two kids. So we went across the street to Millennium Park in uh, the middle of Chicago. Gosh, man, I can't talk today. In the middle of Chicago, we walk across the street, Millennium Park, and we're walking sort of all over the park trying to find somebody to talk to. We finally go to this open lawn area, and I see at one end of the lawn someone, this kid, just sitting there. And I'm like, all right, that's the guy. We're going to go talk to him right now. We book it across this lawn. And right when we get up to the kid, and I'm about ready to, I'm like, okay, we're going to do this. I'm psyching myself up to go preach the gospel to this kid. I realize Pastor Mike Jonker is like 10 feet away from him. The kid's holding a flyer. He's already been talked to by Mike, and he's on the phone. I'm like, dang it. So I turn around. I'm like, all right, we have to find someone else now. And about 150, 200 yards away, I see these two people at the entire other end of the field. I'm like, all right, we got to book it over there so that these people don't walk away. We book it over, and right when I get up to talk to them, I realize it's the same two kids that we followed across the street. So we walk up, Jake and I, and uh, I just walk up to him. Hey, guys, how are you doing? And they're like kind of sketched out, like, what's your problem, man? Why are you talking to us? And I end up breaking down. I end up getting to know these two guys. Their names were Chase and Tony. Chase and Tony. And I get to share the entire gospel message with both of them. Tony is a, was raised a Christian, but you could tell by his responses that definitely wasn't walking in it anymore. I was like, so do you believe in God? Yeah, I went to youth group all through high school. Okay, I didn't really ask that, but you told me more than you thought you did. And I asked Chase, what about you? Do you believe in God? And he said, well, I mean, I, I guess so. Uh, I, I was sort of raised going to church, and I was confirmed, but that's about it. And so I get to, to break down and share the gospel with Chase and with Tony. And Tony is constantly interrupting to ask the, the most random, pointless questions, you know, like having nothing to do with it. He's like, so are you really from California? I'm like, yes. But anyway, like I was saying, and I'm trying to get back to the gospel and I'm really talking to Chase, you know, 
And half the time he's engaged, half the time he's not. And I'm sort of slightly encouraged, but mostly discouraged because I feel like he's not receiving it. This kid, Tony's just mocking and scoffing at me the whole time, pretty much. And I was so bummed, but I got down to it. And I, after I'd preached the entire gospel, Chase had a few questions, which I got to answer. And then I got to share with Chase this, that God, before the foundations of the earth, before he created the universe, planned and ordained that I would be in Chicago, that I would need to get coffee, that I'd go across the street to Caribou Coffee, passing another perfectly good coffee shop, that I would follow him across the street to Millennium Park, that I would go try to talk to somebody else who, and find out that they'd already been talked to, that I would walk up and talk to him. That God, before the foundations of the earth, had ordained, had set up this meeting with Chase, and that he wasn't going to miss it. And I'll tell you, Chase, in that moment, locked eyes with me, and he started to tear up. He couldn't believe that God would do something like that just to get his attention. Just to get his attention. And you know, I, I, I ended that conversation and Chase did not give his life to Christ right then and there in the middle of Millennium Park. But you know, when he walked away, twice, because I was watching as they walked away, twice, he looked over his shoulder back at me and Jake. Couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe that someone had just walked up to him, walked right into his world and just totally destroyed it and dismantled his life by telling him that there's a God that loves him personally so much that he would set up a meeting, God would set up a meeting with Chase to get his attention and that God would organize all of these things just so he wouldn't miss that meeting. Chase couldn't believe it. And I bring this up, I tell this story just to again further illustrate what Rob is saying. Don't miss out on an opportunity. Don't miss out on an opportunity. Because when the Lord lays it on your heart to talk to somebody, it's not random. It's not chance. But it's something set up and ordained from before the foundations of the earth that you talk to that person. And God will give you the exact thing to say that's going to totally cut to their heart. And you don't have to be an evangelist because I'm not, okay? You just have to be available. You have to be ready. And you just have to do it. Just do it. Amen? Thank you for that sick devotion, Rob. That really encouraged me. We need to be sharing the gospel and never missing an opportunity. Open up with me to Exodus chapter 36. Exodus chapter 36. If you don't already know, here at the upper room, we're reading through the Bible together, chapter a day. And so every seventh chapter, we come together and we take a look at that seventh chapter. And uh, so we're in Exodus 36 today. Last week, Jeremy did a great job about explaining, you know, the consecration, the consecration of the priests, Aaron and his sons. But after that, something very important happened that I just want to briefly touch on. 
Shortly after that, Moses is up on the mountain, still receiving commands from the Lord. And he comes down, and the people had gotten tired of waiting around for Moses. And so what they do, long story short, you should read about this. You really should. If you missed it, didn't read about it, you need to read chapter 32 of Exodus. But long story short, the people got sick of waiting for Moses. And so they got Aaron to to build them a golden calf. And they worship this golden calf saying, this is the God that, that took us out of Egypt. A cow. It's ridiculous. A cow saved them from Pharaoh. Ridiculous, okay? So Moses comes down and sees, he's, he's up on the mountain. Imagine with me that you've just come down from being in the very presence of God. You've been in the very presence of God. You come down all stoked to tell the people to give God's word to them. And they're dancing naked around a golden calf, worshiping it. So Moses is ticked. He, you know what happens. He throws the, the tablets. He throws down the Ten Commandments. They break up into millions of pieces. And uh, what does God do? Does he roast them? Does he say, I can't believe you would ever do this, you rebellious children. You're, that's it. You're toast. It's over. And, I, and kill them all. No, he doesn't do that. I mean, he said they deserved it, and they did. They did deserve it. And God pointed out that they rightly deserved to be roasted. But what does God do? He sends Moses back up the mountain. He says, let's, let's try this again. Act two. Ready? Action. All right, let's try again. And he reaffirms his covenant with the children of Israel. That's so sick. Because that's exactly what God does for us over and over and over again. We come and we get taught the word. We get taught God's command for our life. We get taught the word and then we go out and we live in total rebellion against God sometimes. We're dancing naked around a golden calf. Hopefully not literally. We have other problems if that's going on. Talk to me after. But no, we rebel against God. But what does he do? What does he do? Does he roast us? Does he call fire down from heaven to consume us? No. Does he strike us with a lightning bolt? No. He reaffirms his covenant with us. I love that. So sweet. So that's exactly what God does. He reaffirms his covenant with the children of Israel and he commands that a, uh, that a tabernacle be made. Now the tabernacle, what that is, is the tabernacle is where God would meet with Moses. And that's in a sense where God dwelt in the camp of Israel. And so he commands contributions to be made and people bring a bunch of contributions, bring gifts, bring things to help furnish and make this tabernacle. And that's where we pick up in Exodus chapter 36. Exodus chapter 36. Before we get into this though, sorry, I wanted to talk about something. (laughs) Just remembered. We're going to be talking about how the tabernacle was built. How the tabernacle was built. If you read ahead and you've read this chapter today already, 
you might be discouraged to not listen to this message because you might be falsely led to believe that this is going to be boring, okay? Because Exodus chapter 36, at first read, is boring. I wouldn't blame you if you thought that this message was going to be boring because at first read of this chapter, it seems like a bunch of cubits and a bunch of different types of wood and different types of cover. It it seems boring and it seems pointless, but nothing could be further from the truth. People love to know how different buildings were built, right? When I was younger, I got to spend some time in Italy when I was a kid and uh, went with my family. And one of the coolest things that sticks out in my mind is in Rome, uh, there's a building called uh, the Parthenon. And in the Parthenon in Rome, it's this massive dome of a building and inside is all of the different gods that the Romans worshipped. Now, the cool thing, the thing that sticks out in my mind about the Parthenon is how they built it. It's this huge dome. And if you look at it, it's ridiculous. I mean, how could they possibly built something like this back in the day before they had, you know, cranes and anything like that? How could they have built this? And I love how they built it. This has always stuck out in my mind. They made a big dirt mound and built it around this dirt mound. That's genius. I mean, it's simple, but it's so, so smart. But then the question is, how did they get the dirt out? How'd they get the dirt out? Well, the Romans were really smart when they built the Parthenon because when they, fit, when they made this massive dirt mound, Along with the dirt, they put money in the dirt. So they mixed coins in with this dirt and then built this mound and then built the, gosh, I'm going to knock this lamp over, built the, uh, built the Parthenon around it. And so what they did is when they were finished, the Roman government told all the people, there's money in the dirt, it's all yours. And so the people dug the dirt out of the Parthenon to get the money. That's so smart. So smart because ultimately they saved a lot more money in doing that than they would have paying people to dig the dirt out. So smart. So smart. I love figuring out how people built certain things. And if you go to Disneyland with Rob, you'll figure out how they built Main Street. And it's interesting. We love learning how things were built, right? What could be more important to us? What could be more valuable? What could be more interesting than learning how the tabernacle was built? This is important. Please, there are going to be parts as we're reading through this that are going to seem dry. Don't tune out. You don't want to miss this. I'm telling you. Because as cool as the Parthenon story is, there's some rich stuff in here. And it's sick. So let's start reading together. In Exodus chapter 36, starting in verse 1. Bezalel and Ohaliab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Ohaliab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill. Everyone whose heart stirred him up to come do the work, and they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for the doing of the work on the sanctuary. 
we'll pause right there just to say, to explain what's happening. Basically, we'll just call them B and O because I don't want to have to, I know it sounds like B-O, but just go with it, okay? I don't want to have to pronounce their names because I suck at pronouncing names. You all know that. B and O were the foremen of the project. They were the foremen, sort of the, the general contractors that were going to be over the building of the tabernacle. And so Moses called all the called B and O and all these people who had any building skill and who it was on their heart to come and they they came and built the tabernacle. They came and built the tabernacle. But there's something so important that I don't want to miss with this, guys. It says in verse 2 that Moses called B and O and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him to come and do the work. Listen, the tabernacle was built by by people that had two things in common. The first was that God had given them the gift to be able to, to build this thing. And the second was that it was on their heart to do it. And they came. Today, family, there's work to be done. We're going to be getting into later what that is. But there is work to be done in the family of God here. And every single one of you, God has given gifts. Like I said, I don't have the gift of evangelism. I have other gifts. But my, my friend and, and co-worker Jason, he has the gift of evangelism. You know, another one of, uh, of my co-workers, his name is Aaron. He has incredible gifts, not only spiritual gifts of exhortation and encouragement, but he has great physical gifts. He can sing and play the guitar, and he is a fantastic worship leader. Jason is not a worship leader, neither am I, but Aaron is. And so that's his role. That's the specific thing that God has given him gifts to be able to do. You know, me, I I have some some spiritual gifts. I'm not going to go into those right now. But, you know, on top of that, God's given me the ability to do media-related stuff. You know, video and graphic design. And so in our high school ministry, that's what I do. I do our graphic design. I'm our media director for the high school ministry. And so that's what I do. Every single one of you, though, has certain gifts, both spiritual and physical gifts that God has given you. Every single one of you. If you're a Christian, you have these gifts, you have these skills, you have these talents. And in your mind, you know what they are. Now, the question that I have for you is this. Do you have the heart? Every one of you, I know, has the skill. But my question for you is, do you have the heart? Because it wasn't just people who had skill that came to build the tabernacle, but it was those who had the heart to do it. Those who had the heart. Every one of us has skill to be doing something in the church, to be advancing the kingdom, to be building up the church. Every single one of us has skill. But my question is, do you have the heart? Do you have the heart? Tyler, I... I don't know what you're you're asking of me. What do you mean? Will you come? Will you do it? Will you sacrifice your time? Will you give of your energy? And will you be used of the Lord? 
to build up his church? Do you have the heart to use your skill for the king rather than just for yourself? B and O and all the people who came to build the tabernacle, they weren't getting paid to build it. They were giving of their time and they were giving of their skill because they had a heart to bless God. I know that you all have skill. I know that you all have gifts. But do you have the heart? Let's keep reading. Sort of there at the end of verse 4. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came each from the task that he was doing and said to Moses, the people bring much more than it is enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave the command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material that they had sufficient that they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. This is so sweet. Okay, not only did God give the the physical gift to these certain men to build the sanctuary. But they also had the heart to serve the Lord. But then there were people in the, in the camp of Israel that weren't builders, okay? Like me. I couldn't build a birdhouse to save my life. It just, it wouldn't happen, okay? I couldn't do it. There were people in the camp of Israel that didn't have the specific gifting or ability or skill to help in the building of the tabernacle. But you know what they did have? They had their family jewelry. They had grandma's pearls in a sense. They had their wages. They had, they had things that they could give to the people who were, were building the tabernacle. And you know what they did? They gave it. They gave it. In fact, they gave so much. People every single morning were coming up and giving the workers materials to build. They were given so much material that they had to tell Moses, we don't know what to do with all this stuff. And frankly, we have so much stuff. The children of Israel are giving us so much stuff that it's getting in the way. And you need to tell them to stop giving. Oh, I long for the day that the pastor would have to stand from the pulpit and say, you need to stop giving because we have more than we know what to do with. I long to see that day, but it doesn't happen. It's not happening here in America. There's not a church out there I would venture to say that the pastor is standing from the pulpit and is saying, please stop giving. We have too much. We don't have enough. You keep coming and giving us food for the homeless. We have more food than we have homeless. You keep coming and giving supplies and energy and efforts, and you come and and you're, you're continuing to give money to take care of the poor and the orphan and the widows in our community, and we have more stuff than we have poor orphans or widows. Stop bringing us stuff. We have too much. It doesn't happen in America. In fact, you want to know what the statistic is as far as giving and tithing in America? 4%. 4% of the church in America tithes. 4%. That's 
That's just the national statistic. If you took every single church in America and you averaged them together about how many people were in their church and how many of those people tithed, 4% tithe. That's not cool. It's not biblical and it's disobedient. I People come to me all the time and say, man, I wish we were an Acts church. You know, I wish we were an Exodus church. I wish we were an Exodus church that when we came together to do the work of the Lord, not only would those who have skill have the heart to come and donate themselves, but those who don't have the skill to do whatever that specific work is, you know what they donate? Everything else that they've got. Oh, you need a fridge? Here, I'll give you my fridge. Oh, you have a need in the children's ministry for a trike? I, here, you, you can have my, my son's trike. He's outgrown it anyway. Oh, you, you have a need for this, for that? One of the pastors needs a new mattress? Uh, you know what? I'll, I'll just get a new mattress for him. Let me, let me get a new mattress for the, for the associate pastor. Oh, you, you, someone needs a place to stay? Oh, I, I've got a place to stay. They can come live with me for free. Whatever I have, it belongs to the church. Why? Because the church is, it it belongs to God. And I want to just give it to the Lord. And so, church, whatever I have, it's at your disposal. I long for the day that we would be that as a family. And I encourage you to be that way. Let's be the kind of family that when we have a need here, it it gets met above and beyond the need. That I have to say, hey, you know what? Please stop taking care of this need because we already have more than we know what to do with. Let's be that kind of family here. And if you have a need, if you have a need that's not being met, I want to be able to, I want to be able to do whatever we can as a family to help meet that need. Okay? That's what I want to be. I want to be an Exodus church. But let's keep reading. We have a lot of scripture to cover here. And I've been droning on about other things for far too long. They're important things, don't get me wrong, but it's not in the text. So, picking up in verse 8. Now this is where, if you were worried about getting boring, this is what you would have been worried about. But don't worry, it's not going to be boring, I promise. Verse 8. And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. They were made of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns with cherubim skillfully worked. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain was four cubits. All the curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains to one another and the other five curtains he coupled to one another. He made loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain of the first set. Likewise, he made them on the edge of the outermost curtain outermost curtain on the second set. He made 50 loops on one curtain and he made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that was in the second set. The loops were opposite one another and he made 50 clasps of gold and coupled the curtains one to another with clasps. So the tabernacle was a single hole. Okay, this is what's happening here. Basically, this structure has now made the, or, or these curtains have now made sort of the three walls of the tabernacle. It's made the three walls of the tabernacle. And 
this is going to be hard to see. I needed to see something like this, so I drew out this artist rendition. I'm not an artist, so it's a non-artist rendition of what the tabernacle would have looked like given the specifications found here in the book of Exodus. So I'm going to reference this a few times. Um, This is north. So this is the, the north side, north, south, east, and west. Okay, so the curtains that we just talked about here, he built them, he, he built one curtain, and then he built, in a sense, nine more just like that one, and then sort of sewed them all together, and then, so now he has sort of like two curtains, that's right here and right here, and then at the end here, I'm sorry, I put it backwards. This is the west side. So at the end here, he clasped them together with 50 gold clasps. So essentially, all that we just read, this is all you need to know, all that we just read is this sort of uh, the three walls of the tabernacle. Does that make sense? Okay. I did a really bad job of explaining that right now. Lord, you'll have to interpret. <laughs> anyway... We'll continue reading. Uh, Verse 14, right? That's where I left off? Okay. Verse 14, he also made curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. He made 11 curtains. The length of each curtain was 30 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain was 4 cubits. The 11 curtains were the same size. He coupled five by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And he made 50 loops on the edge of the outermost curtain of one set and 50 loops on the outer, on the edge of the other connecting curtain. And he made 50 clasps of bronze to couple the tent together that it might be a single hole. And he made for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and goat skins. So what we have here is now we have the coverings, the various coverings. So we have, going around the tabernacle, we have this very, very fine linen with blue and purple and satin threads. This really, really beautiful curtain that makes up the walls. Then we have goat hair that sort of covers the whole thing. I know that sounds gross, goat hair, but it's what God commanded. Goat hair. And then on top of that, on top of the goat hair, we have these tanned uh, ram skins and uh, tanned, was it tanned ram and goat skins, right? Yes, tanned ram skins and goat skins that are sort of sewn together that cover the outside of the tabernacle. Make sense? Okay, let's keep reading. I promise it's going to get really crazy very soon. Verse 20, then he made the upright frames for this tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits was the length of each frame and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. Each frame had two tenons for fitting together. He did this for all the frames of the tabernacle. The frames for the tabernacle he made thus. Twenty frames for the south side and he made forty bases of silver under the twenty frames. 
two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. For the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, he made 20 frames, and there are 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame and two bases under the next frame. For the rear of the tabernacle, westward, he made six frames. He made two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear, and they were separate beneath but joined at the top at the first ring. He made two of them this way for the two corners. There were eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases under each frame, two bases. He made bars of acacia wood, five for the frames on the one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames on the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames on the tabernacle at the rear westward. And all, sorry, and he made the middle bar to run from one end or from end to end halfway up the frames. And he overlaid the frames with gold and made their rings of gold for holders for the bars. And he overlaid the bars with gold. Okay. Back to our little poorly drawn illustration. Okay. So we had, right? This is like a bird's eye view of the tabernacle. We had these three walls established, right? This is the north, the south, and the west wall that were all established by the curtain of fine linen with uh, blue and um, with blue and scarlet and purple threads, right? And then we put the goat hair over it all, and then over that we put the uh, tanned rams and goat skins over that, right? Over all that, as we see not only in uh, chapter 26 of Exodus, but in the coming chapters, on top of all that was sort of like a, uh, a waterproof covering made of the skins of sea cows. I'd love to tell you I knew what those were, but I, I don't. But sea cow, coverings, sea cow skins covering the top of it, and it was sort of its waterproof covering. But now, in order to support the structure, because it's just fabric, right? Anyone who's ever pitched a tent knows that you have to have tent poles that hold the thing up. So that's what we're talking about here is tent poles. Every little circle represents a tent pole, okay? Represents a tent pole. There's 20 on this side, 20 on this side, and 6 on this side. And that supports the structure of the tabernacle. Does that make sense? All makes good sense? Okay, that's what's happening there. Keep reading. We're almost through the woods, I promise. This is going to be really cool. Verse 35. He made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen with cherubim skillfully worked into it. He made it. And for it, he made four pillars of acacia and overlaid them with gold. Their hooks were of gold and he cast for them four bases of silver, okay? What he's talking about here is we have the four, or the three, pardon me, walls of the tabernacle. Right here, right here, there's a curtain that separates this part of the tabernacle, which is known as the holy place, the holy place, 
from this part of the tabernacle, which is called the most holy place or the holy of holies. The holy of holies. The holy of holies is where the glory of God dwelt. And no one could enter the holy of holies except for the high priest once a year on the day of atonement when they would atone for the sins of the people of Israel. And it's in the Holy of Holies that the Ark of the Covenant dwelt. Okay? So the Holy of Holies is where the very glory of God dwelt. And so right here, there is a huge curtain or a huge veil that is made. And it's of blue and purple and scarlet, again, threaded linen, with beautiful cherubim made on it, right? And there are four bases of silver that hold the the poles that support this massive curtain, okay? Does that make sense? So again, just quick recap. We have sort of inside here, these walls are made up of blue, scarlet, purple, linen, right? Outside of that, goat hair, then uh, animal skins, and then another layer of animal skins, and that's sort of the structure of the tabernacle. We're almost done reading, and then we have a lot of explaining and talking about this to do. Verse 37, He also made a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework and its five pillars with their hooks. He overlaid their capitals and put their fillets, uh, and their fillets were of gold, but their five bases were of bronze. So on the east side here, I made this, these marks to represent that this is the, the entrance. This is the entrance to the tabernacle. And it was made again of scarlet, of purple, and of blue with fine embroidery or etching on it. And five pillars were used to hold up this curtain that, sort of was the entrance to the tent of meeting. Okay, so does all of this make sense? You understand the general structure of the tabernacle. Well, we talked about how the tabernacle, you know, it's, it's where God dwelt, right? And so if this is where God dwelt, we should want to understand what it looked like what it was comprised of. But there's something so much more significant about the tabernacle. And that's this. The tabernacle to God, the tabernacle had really three building phases. Phase one was what we just talked about here. It was the tabernacle proper. This is the the tent or the dwelling place that God dwelt on earth. And if you wanted to know the mind of God, if you wanted to talk to God, if you wanted to be near God, you had to come to the tabernacle. So if you were on the other side of the planet and you wanted to come have your sin forgiven, you wanted to know God, you had to come to the tabernacle. Phase two, building phase two of the tabernacle, happened a couple thousand years later. We read about it in John chapter one. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. We read in verse 14 of John chapter 1 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt 
literally is tabernacled. Building phase number two of the tabernacle was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus was God in human flesh. And if you wanted to know God, you had to come to Jesus. You had to come to Jesus, right? And many people did. They came to Jesus and they got to to know him and to see him and to touch him and to live with God there on earth in the person of Jesus. This makes a lot of sense with a lot of the, the statements that Jesus made about his body. You remember he told the Pharisees, you will destroy this temple, but in three days I will raise it again. The Pharisees thought that he was talking about the actual temple, which took like 46 years to build. And they're like, are you crazy? You're going to tear that thing down in one day and rebuild it in three? Forget about it. Jesus was talking not about the building, but about his body, the very temple of God. He was the tabernacle. But he wasn't done there. Building phase three. Building phase three of the tabernacle. What is the tabernacle today? We don't have a tabernacle here. And Jesus has ascended to be at the right hand of the Father. What's the tabernacle? You. You. Where does God choose to dwell today? In your heart. In your heart. And in the church. When I say the church, I don't mean a brick or cement or wood building. But us, a body of believers, the church, we are in in whom God dwells today. We are the tabernacle. It's talked about, Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, you can go read about it. Paul says that we are all, in a sense, bricks of the building of the temple of God, and Jesus is the chief cornerstone. We're the temple. We are the the tabernacle. We are where God chooses to dwell on earth. And if people want to get to know God, they only need to get to know you. They only need to get to know you because God has sent his Holy Spirit to dwell and live in your heart and in your life. Paul also talks about, talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, don't you know that your bodies are the very temple of God? You're the tabernacle. You are where God dwells here on earth. This makes it all the more significant as we study now the tabernacle, understanding that this should describe us as well. There's a few things that I want to point out about this tabernacle. A couple of quick things. The first one is this. On the outside, what did it look like? Animal skins. That's frankly kind of gross, but... It's not that ornate. It's not that beautiful. It's not that special. If you were flying over the tabernacle, you probably would have looked at it and seen this awkward-looking tent and just gone right by. You just flown right by it. 
I mean, the thing was not that big. It was about 15 feet tall. It was about 10 feet wide or so, I think, and roughly 30 to 40 feet long. This is just conversion from cubits. (laughs) But this tent with animal skins on it. But when you came up to the animal skins you realize that this front curtain was, man, it was, it was really, it was kind of nice looking. I mean, it had blue and, and scarlet and purple, which were not easy to make. It wasn't easy to dye fabric back in this day. So to see dyed fabric was pretty impressive. And it had beautiful uh, embroidery on this, this curtain. And so when you walk in and you open this curtain and you look, this curtain is supported by bronze, uh, bronze bases with gold pillars. I mean, this looks pretty beautiful. I mean, you, as you come up to it, you, you get a closer look. But when you open it up and you walk in, you realize how fantastic this really is. Because again, on the outside, the outside layer, what was it? It was just animal skins. But when you walk in the inside, you look and you see all of this beautiful linen with blue and scarlet. You see the furnishings of the tabernacle, which were all of gold and silver. And you think, wow, man, this is beautiful. But then ahead of you, ahead of you, you see this the next curtain. And this curtain is far more beautiful than anything you've seen yet. It is the the best looking thing in there. And it doesn't just have embroidery on it. It has these beautiful cherubim, these beautiful angels decorating this this gorgeous curtain. And rather than the, the brass bases that you saw in the first curtain, this one has silver. These bases are made of silver, It's a lot more beautiful than at first glance, and it's a lot more beautiful than where you're standing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I'm not entirely sure how they did it. It's, well, I sort of know. Have you ever seen, um, right, embroidered, but have you ever seen, um, like, uh, Navajo, especially Navajo, do it. Navajo rugs. Have you ever seen Navajo rugs or big tapestries? You know, a big tapestry. It's all of this thread that's woven together, and it's this beautiful picture or beautiful pattern that's on uh, this tapestry. This curtain was just like a tapestry. It was woven in such a way that these different colored uh, threads and even gold thread made these beautiful pictures of these cherubim angels. That makes sense? So you see this beautiful curtain, and then once you pass this curtain, inside the Holy of Holies where God dwelt, this is where the most precious materials were. You have the Ark of the Covenant, which is made of not just gold, but very, very, very well-refined gold. And you have all of these gold bases, of refined gold bases. You have all of this beautiful gold and purple and blue and red. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous architecture in a sense. Embroidery and 
great skill and workmanship that went into this. On the outside, it just looked like animal skins, but when you get on the inside, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. This is how Jesus was. You know, we read in, in, in the book of Isaiah, in a prophecy about Jesus, Isaiah 53, it says that he had no form that you should behold him. He had no beauty that you would pick him out of a crowd in a sense. There was nothing outwardly special about Jesus. He probably, was, well, based on this passage, we know he wasn't that attractive. He wasn't good. He was not the blonde-haired, blue-eyed surfer that we see in the popular paintings. He was just an average Joe. But it's not outside that mattered. It's what was inside. It's what, when you got to the very heart of Jesus, that you saw the gold, that you saw the beauty, that you saw the preciousness, and that you stood in awe of how great he was. It's the same thing, and it should be the same thing, family, for us as the church. We are where God dwells. We are where God dwells. And unlike the, you know, I want to point this out because I don't want to miss this. This is so crazy. This is so important. You've all heard of the seven wonders of the world, right? The hanging gardens of Babylon, uh, the Great Wall of China, these great ancient wonders of the world. Do you want to know what my favorite wonder of the world is? It's Solomon's Temple. Solomon's Temple is my favorite of the great wonders of the world. Why? Because when you looked at Solomon's temple, just like the tabernacle, it was nothing special on the outside. It didn't look that great. Frankly, the outside was very poorly, in a sense, poorly designed. And if you just looked at the outside, you would never have thought that Solomon's temple would have made it to be one of the seven wonders of the world. It wasn't even that big. Compared to the temple that Herod built, the, the temple of Jesus' time, it was actually tiny. Tiny. But why was this one of the greatest wonders of, that the world has ever seen? Because when you walked inside, it was the beauty inside that mattered, not the beauty outside. All the other wonders of the world, it has everything to do with how it looks. But not Solomon's temple. It's what was inside that mattered, not what was outside. That's what it needs to be for us. It needs to be what's inside, not out. Not out. Outside, hey, this is, I'm, I'm still just a dude, okay? Walking down the street, you could easily pass by me, and it's just, well, that's, a, that's another guy. But it's when you get a little deeper, you walk past the curtain in a sense. You walk past the animal skin in a sense. And you get to see what's inside that you realize how beautiful and how gorgeous this is. And I'm not saying that, oh, family, you just need to have this real inner beauty and you just need to be good people. That's not what I'm saying. You need to have Jesus. Because when people talk to you and they get past the exterior of who you are and they get to really see your heart They should see Jesus. Remember, we're the tabernacle. We're where God dwells. When people talk to you, when they get past the exterior and the surface, they should see Jesus. And that should be so beautiful. 
so gorgeous. And the deeper they get, it should only be more beautiful. It should only be more amazing to them. It should only be more astounding, more astonishing. And so my question for you is this, the deeper, if I were to go into your life in a sense, and I were to really dig into your life and dig into the very depths of your heart, let me ask you this, does it get more beautiful or more dark? When people look at you as a Christian on the outside, do they see all the beauty that there is to see? Do they see all the Jesus that there is to see on the outside because you're just sort of like putting it all outside so people see it? But when they get inside, does it get darker and darker and less impressive? Or do the deeper that they get in your life, do they see more and more and more of Jesus? More of this beautiful, these beautiful tapestries and this gold, and it gets from being brass to silver to real gold and fine gold because Jesus in your heart and in your life from the inside out is doing this beautification process in your life. The tabernacle was hugely impressive, but not because of what was outside. It's what was inside. What was inside? God. The closer you got to the center of the Holy of Holies, it was more beautiful and more beautiful and more beautiful. Why? Because it represented that this is the very presence of God. This is where God dwells. What's more beautiful in your life, the outside or the inside? What has more Jesus in your life is essentially what I'm asking. The outside or the inside? Do I see all the Jesus that there is to see on your sleeve? Or do the deeper I get, do I get to see more and more and more and more and more of the beauty of Christ in your heart? I really, this is something that really struck me. I don't want to be known ever as the, the guy who on the surface looks all well and good. I want to be known as that guy because Jesus wasn't known as that guy. Jesus was the guy that the more you spent time with him, the more you hung out with him, you didn't learn deeper and darker secrets and see more and more and more of, oh, this is who he really is. You got to see more and more and more of God in him. You got to see more and more and more of the beauty and the glory of God in this frame of a man. Jesus was, again, he was, he was human, 100% fully human, in human flesh. Didn't look that great, but the more that you spent time with him, the more you talked with him, the more you got to know him, the deeper you got into Jesus, the more you saw the glory of God. Let's let the same thing be true of us. That the more time you spend with us, the deeper you get into us, the more of God's glory you see. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful picture of the tabernacle. God, that on the outside, it was nothing impressive. We wouldn't have looked at it. We wouldn't have given it a second glance. But when you went inside, you got to see more and more and more of 
the beauty of this place that you dwelt in. God, thank you for for giving us this great picture of your son Jesus that you sent to to tabernacle among us and to be your dwelling place here on earth. And that he was exactly the same way. Nothing special on the outside, but inside he it was all your glory. God, I pray that we, the church, the deeper that people would get into us, that they would see your beauty, that they would see your glory, and that they would come in contact with you. God, I pray that when people get into our lives, that our light would so shine before them that they would glorify you. God, I pray that we would constantly as a church, as a family, be working, be laboring together with whatever skills you've given us to build up this temple, that we would constantly be adding bricks, Lord, that we'd constantly be sharing with people and that you would be working in their heart and adding them to your kingdom, to your temple, to your tabernacle. God, I pray that we, I pray that we would bear your beauty. Please. In your precious son's name. May the Lord richly bless you and keep you. May God cause his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord, wherever you're at in your life, lift up his countenance to you this week and give you peace.